Hi, I'm Dee Sterling. I'm a lover of language and languages. I'm a storyteller. I'm also a businesswoman and the co-founder of Center for Entrepreneurs. Welcome to my podcast, Double Espresso with Dee. Over coffee, a very strong one in my case, I will get curious with my guests about their journeys in life and business and how they practice living courageous, creative and interesting lives. Hi, I'm Dee Sterling. Welcome to my podcast, Double Espresso with Dee. In my first series, I am talking to a number of credible entrepreneurs about their stories and their journeys in life and business. My guest today is Jackie Coovers, a dear friend and one of the girlfriends, which is a group of people in my life who matter profoundly to me. Fantastic woman, super accomplished, successful in all the ways that matter, her striving and thriving and supporting one another. And Jackie is one of those superstars and especially to me and all of us girls. Hi, Jackie. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Dee, for having me here. Such a pleasure. Jackie, I am going to give our listeners and our viewers a little short version of uh, who you are. And then I would love to hear so much more about you and what you're up to at the present time. Jackie is a tech entrepreneur and renowned social intelligence expert. She's also co-founder and CEO of a leading tech company, Convosphere. Convosphere is a social intelligence agency working with clients across a range of different industries and harnessing the value of social media intelligence. Through human-led social data analysis across 45 languages and probably growing, um, it delivers deep cultural insights for global clients into their local markets and audiences. I have to add as well that whilst doing all of this, Jackie's a mother to three and she is also doing a master's at Oxford University in the science of the internet. Go Jackie! Uh, and supporting many young female entrepreneurs along the way. So you are incredible. I don't know how you pack it all in, and we will be returning to that during our podcast. But Jackie, today to start, could we talk about social intelligence? What does that mean to the person in the street? And what is its implication? What are the implications for society and how did you get into this space? Okay, absolutely. So um, at a level that I think most people could probably understand, we're using online conversations. So the posts that people are putting on blogs, forums, websites, social media like Facebook or Twitter to answer our clients' business questions. So this doesn't mean that we're going to your personal private Facebook account, but it does mean that a post that you posted publicly on Twitter or on a forum could be included in this larger data set. Right. And so these questions are often marketing questions, market research questions, um, trying to understand audiences, consumers, and consumer behavior better. It, this is used by a wide range of, of clients and industries. So mm. we do a lot of work for pharmaceutical companies, uh, food and beverage companies, movie studios, anyone who's trying to really understand what consumers are saying. And it's quite different than traditional market research, which would be doing interviews or, or right. uh, surveys or a panel or a focus group. Right. Because conversations have already happened and they were unsolicited. So no one's asked you for your opinion, this is something you cared enough about to go online and to post what you posted. Right. So we use that as part of our data set. And we do that um, with conversations 
that are happening globally. So we have analysts in Japan who are doing the analysis in Japanese. So they're bringing not just that understanding of the lo local social networks and, and they're bringing in the cultural context and relevancy as well, because that may be quite different than, you know, what's being said or interpreted in a, a different market like the US or New Zealand. Right, right. And what are the growth markets therein? Is it, you mentioned a number of sectors, are there some sectors that really can benefit more or are more in tune with this type of process and technology? So I think there's two different ways to view that. So first would be a kind of a, a geographic perspective. So there's a lot of companies in, in, in Europe or, or the US um, who are interested in tapping into new markets. So China uh, and Russia are big ones and Brazil to understand what's happening. How can they potentially launch their product? How can they understand the consumers better? Um, and they, they may not have the tools, the team or the resources to understand what's happening in those markets. Further, access to data from China is restricted outside of China. So you need people on the ground there. Um, so you can analyze the data, get the insights while still in China right. to actually make sense and start to make kind of data-driven decisions based on the findings. The next would be industry-wise. I think um, there's um, the health pharma life sciences industry can continue to really benefit from understanding the patients much better. So there's this term that right. gets thrown about patient centricity. Um, but basically, it boils down to actually answering the needs or whether those are informational needs, that's access, that's, you know, uh, affordability, understanding the right. true needs and speaking to those needs. And so unless right. you listen, and then respond, uh, you know, you're just kind of forcing your view onto them. I think industries that have a long, longer history of using this type of research method are the, the consumer products ones. So um, right. food and beverage, and also it's a market issue as well. So the U.S. has been doing this for quite some time. And so they have this as part of their budget, their research budget, their insights budget, their marketing budget, whereas in, in Europe and other their markets, you know, it's more of a new concept or or there's less understanding of how impactful this can be. Is the rest of the world catching up? And some of the sectors you mentioned, like health, you know, obviously health tech is a very high growth area, uh, food and beverage, well, people are always going to eat and drink. What that looks like may vary, but that that is a fact. And of course, during COVID, uh, food and beverage went through the roof right? Yeah. People were eating and drinking um, like it was the last days of the Roman Empire, basically. But do you find that in Europe that, you know, there is now a bit more of an oceanic swell and people are, are catching up? Or do you think Europe's still quite far behind the US in adopting this? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, the pandemic has forced um, people to adopt this at a faster rate that they might have done over the past year. So we've actually had a large growth in business because yeah. people can't access people for interviews or focus groups. They can't get in front of people. Nobody wants to show up, you know, with a room full of people to be asked questions. So right. they've, they're, they're using this type of research and the insights generated. The other thing that it provides is we, because this data has been collected historically by the different social listening tools and the data providers, we have the data at hand and we can look historically at a pre-pandemic period and now 
to compare what so are the interesting, right. consumer perception. Because if I was to ask you a question, you can't remove the, the pandemic experience from your head. Everything that you see now or your perception of it, of being in a crowded space or um, social distancing or far <laughs> so apart true. to you things in a store or restaurant, you can't remove that experience that you've already had, but we have the data from before so we can compare. And whether that's, you know, a home goods product, food issue, um, shopping, there's all kinds of questions that can be answered with the existing data. We talk a lot about privacy, and I know we're going to come on to this, but in relation to your client-facing work, how do you ring fence the data that you're getting uh, and isolate it? Because in aggregate, if you were working for clients across related in a, in a sector such as healthcare, you know, there's a lot of cross-sharing and cross-learning that could be gained in that sort of context. So how do you, how do you separate that out? Well, when we're working with clients in a, in a similar industry or therapeutic area or competitors, we have to put different team members on it um, and right. they have access to separate you know, files and tools. So from just an operational perspective, that's what we have to do within the team. Right. But you know, the data is the data. So if we're looking at something, say, in psoriasis or type 2 diabetes, mm. we're using the data set that's out there, that's been on Facebook, that's been on um, Twitter, that's been on a forum or blog, that's been collected by a social listening tool that's licensed it. So it's um, the same data could theoretically be pulled into multiple projects. It's the business right, question understood. that's different, um, the analysis, and then the outputs that are different. And then in terms of privacy, so pharma and financial services are regulated industries. So there's certain kind of compliance and regulatory things that we need to abide by in our research. And for pharma, that's uh, adverse event reporting and other kind of safety issues. And then we also have to abide by the you know, policies of the different countries or governments. So there's GDPR in Europe and in California, there's the California data privacy laws, right. all of which are, are put there to protect kind of consumers and citizens and things like that. Jackie, tell me, where did this all start for you? Because I've known you for many years and, you know, you're my tech guru. What, what was the beginning for you of right, this so, journey? Um, I've always been interested in technology and computers. And for me, so this industry has evolved as social media has evolved. But if you look at it, Twitter's only been around since 2006. So all of the people working in this industry now come from a variety of backgrounds, digital marketing, market research, anthropology. The social sciences, yes, consumer so behavior. Yeah, there's not a degree program for this. So for me, my career has kind of been a, a progression of the overlap of art, science, and technology, and that's yeah. what makes me happy and nerdy. Um, so <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, uh, I I actually started uh, when I was back in uh, Chicago. And I was working in digital marketing. And as social media evolved, I needed to measure and monitor the engagements that clients started having across social channels as these developed. And a lot of that was also consulting with female entrepreneurs in, in the Chicago area. So working with uh, these women business owners to 
going from measuring their newsletter or email campaigns all the way through measuring their Twitter party engagements and things like that. Um, right. And then understanding, you know, how these different social platforms can be kind of leveraged or measured to gain insight from that. So then I started working for a management consultancy firm and brought in this as kind of an offering. And then it became apparent to me that while people could do it well, often in one language, that there was just a real demand for doing this well across multiple languages. So not using Google Translate, but understanding the cultural Which nuance. is terrible, by the way. Yeah, you know, it, no it, offense. It, it, <laughs> so, I mean, if you tried... Speaking a few languages myself, I yeah. mean, it's rubbish, but anyway. <laughs> I mean, so there's, there's idioms, there's euphemisms, there's yeah. irony. And, and tone that is very different across different languages and countries, even in the same language. The difference oh, between absolutely. if I showed up just wearing pants to work in the UK, that would be a problem. But in the US, it would be <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> you know? But then you take in the language that, that's within a specific culture or community at a topic level. So like the American euphemism to die would be to kick the bucket. But if you translated that, using Google Translate and then try to do your research using that those terms or that query, it wouldn't make sense anywhere else. Because in Slovenia, the equivalent is he went to whisper to crabs. So unless you, <laughs> unless you live there, you know that you understand the cultural context yeah. That, yeah. And, and the relevant, you know, what people kind of say, then you're just not going to well, make sense. Well, it's subtle, isn't it? I mean, language, you know, we all think because, you know, in the English speaking world, we're the same. We're not. The differences are really fundamental, right? As you say, these different expressions, the irony behind them and so forth. So when was that, that you brought in all these other languages as a kind of, as opposed to just sticking in one? Yeah. So I launched Convosphere about five years ago. Um, and that was specifically to focus on this multi-language cultural relevancy. And it's been, you know, growing exponentially ever since. Well, you've had an incredible year, haven't you? You know, you've, you've grown, you've been adding senior people to the team, you've been growing internationally. Jackie, looking at the year that's been, which, you know, has been an intense year, and you've obviously been incredibly busy building the business, which is fantastic. What is your feeling about all these conversations, excuse the pun, going on at the moment around privacy, mass data collection. I mean, there has been some press coverage recently with experiments going on at the Home Office and so forth. What is your view on this? Because historically, um, you know, anyone who knows would say that people prefer ease of access to privacy. So people typically uh, do not change their passwords very frequently or don't really pay too much attention until something goes wrong. What is your view on you know, infringement on privacy, on mass data collection, the fact that, you know, some people will say we belong to Google. <laughs> and what is the direction of travel with all of this? Yeah, so I, I mean, doing what we do, we're using the conversations, right, as, as our key data source. So I think that there should be knowledge that people should have of how their data is being used and, you know, control over who uses that data. I mean, personally, I have my Facebook profile set to private <laughs> because I don't want to share that outside of my, you know, selected group of friends. But there are things that I say on Twitter that are very public and could be collected or, or used by other people. Right. I right. think a lot of the concern that has been expressed. So for example, in the, the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, yeah. I think the concern is being put in the wrong place. 
because the, the social dilemma was a drama documentary. It was a dramatization of, of some things that people should be aware of and are a concern, but there are things that you could do to protect your privacy and or kind of limit the amount of notifications you get. But I think what people also need to be aware of that there are guidelines, kind of ethical guidelines that the different people who are working in this area need to abide by. So both our own ethical guidelines, our clients' research and ethics guidelines, but then everybody also belongs to research societies or industry organizations that also have very strict guidance on how you can use data, what you can and can't do. And then there are the policy uh, things like GDPR. So there's actually a number of things that are put out there at different levels that people are trying to, and businesses are trying to do the right thing. And people should be aware that, you know, the mass data collections that that have been happening by governments Mm -hmm. are actually potentially scarier than, you know, uh, organizations like the social media platforms collecting and and monetizing their data. I think that that's probably accurate. I also think that people don't really know. They're not familiar. They don't really know know what goes on. It's like when they tick, you know, that the box on Google for the terms, they're not spending half a day reading through however many pages, right? So it, it is complex because I think people, particularly in the past year, there has been a lot of conversation around governments passing laws, giving access to personal data for the benefit of society during a pandemic. And it will be interesting to see how that evolves. Jackie, tell me in relation to you, you've been in the tech world for quite a long time. You're you're building a business that's growing exponentially. You're really part of the dialogue on a global level with what you're doing. What would the um, Jackie today say to the Jackie of 15 years ago? How are you different today? And and what message would you say to young people building businesses? I know you mentor and coach quite a lot of young female entrepreneurs who are aspiring to build businesses. What has shifted for you and what's the message today to them? So I would suggest that if there's something they're interested in trying or doing to just go for it, try it out. The worst that's going to happen is you hit a roadblock and you have to iterate. And, um, you know, or that was market testing and now you can can revise and uh, come up with a a better idea. When I first started my first kind of entrepreneurial business, it was a lip balm store and it was online. And um, my queen of lipsticks, you love lipsticks. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, within one year I had, so this was back in 2002, but within uh, one year it was in. People Magazine, Lucky Shape, In Style, um, Mary oh Claire, gosh. Um, and I had a I had an email monthly newsletter list of ten thousand subscribers. So um, at the time, I had never built a website, never done building a mailing list, mm-hmm. um, stocking products, and and things like that. And it didn't occur to me that I couldn't do it. Um, so <laughs> I would I would tell everybody or anybody who asked, just go for it. <laughs> yeah. Like a true entrepreneur, like what's the worst that can happen? That's what I always say also to my kids. Like, you know, if you don't ask, the answers always no. And what's the worst that can happen? Just give it a go and take the leap, right? It's literally that. And how do you feel you've changed as a person with all these experiences? I mean, you might be like me where you're just onto the the next thing and the next thing and you're just like, can't even remember because you just don't, you're not focusing on the past. But what have you learned yourself through your life's experiences so far? So I think one of the 
things that I've learned is while I advocate for just do it and, you know, don't be afraid that you don't have a 25 page written business plan. I would say now I have learned some, you know, rigor in terms of writing a business case for things. So even if that's a one page plan or a lean canvas or something like that, now I see the value in doing that, especially as my team gets bigger and scales about, okay, that's a great idea, but we only have finite time, resources, and energy. So let's, you know, kind of do the short kind of case for it. And then, you know, does it fit in our plan? No, then let's table it until later. Because yes, you can spread yourself really thin doing lots of amazing things, but you're not going to get the same progress as if you prioritized and focused and really put momentum behind those. So I think, um, you know, I've, I've always had fun coming up with new business ideas and things like that, but I have learned um, to actually kind of try and prioritize focus and um, put some more planning and evaluation behind things. Yeah, no, that's very good advice. I think too, you know, this has been a strange year and despite the growth of many businesses like yours, which is utterly fantastic, they are calling it a she session as opposed to a recession, which you and I've discussed because it's had a negative impact on a lot of women, uh, either working women who've, you know, had an awful lot on their plate managing working from home plus families and so forth, or for all the other reasons we know. What do you see today in the trend of, you know, women in business and shifts? Because often it feels quite slow, right? Even if it's all meant to be equal and so forth, it doesn't really feel like that. The statistics show that even with our foundation, we always have fewer women applying, even though we have more women on our program than anything in Europe, which isn't any way equivalent. So what's your view on that in terms of women having a, a proper seat at the table and more support is required? So for my specific industry, for social insights and intelligence, it's actually female dominated. So not only am I the CEO in my organization, um, we are greater than 60% women on the team. And Why do you think that is? I think because it's at the heart of it, we're looking at conversations and these are human conversations. And so, yes, we're taking a qualitative and a quantitative approach to this, but you have to be really curious about people. Um, and the conversations that are, hap- that are happening, and you have to have empathy for for what's being said. And um, we use behavioral science models looking at the emotions that people feel right. that sits behind that positive and that negative expressions. And so I think that appeals to women. Pos- I mean, I, we, we yeah. have it's- male employees too, but um, but I think there's something in that that appeals to women. Yeah, and maybe a play, you know, place to their their skills and their levels of EQ and empathy and so forth. I mean, I'm generalizing, but I think there's a strong component of that in women who are curious in the business world, right? And then within our organization too, we set it up to be flexible and remote. So while our headquarters is here in London, our team is spread out throughout the globe. So we have seven offices all across different time zones, and those seven offices manage people in you know over 40 countries, and we don't have, you know, specific kind of everybody must be available nine to five. It's okay. The project deadline is here. Let's schedule a meeting here and here and just make sure you have this done by then. And so for some of our team, that means working around um, their childcare or their own personal interests. We don't care 
where they are working from or what they're working around. We care about good work. We care about teamwork. We compare, you know, care about the quality of the work and, and you know, their kind of the way that they collaborate with everybody in the team. And so that's- Which has to be the way forward, right? I mean, working in this way, and I'm thinking, you know, one of the positives post the year that's been is that people understand you can be more flexible, understand it's about getting the work done. You can collaborate in different ways. You can connect in different ways. You don't have to be on a plane 24 seven, et cetera. So Jackie, what's your secret if there were one with the um, fullness of your life on so many fronts? And I know you, uh, you are unstoppable. Like what's your little secret to keep, keep the ship on course? Sure. So I would say one of the things that I found helps me sleep better at night is writing everything down in the schedule. So even right. if it's scheduling me time, um, if it's on my calendar, it's going to happen. Um, and but without that, but I mean, there are things like the children's dentist appointments and stuff on there, too. Um, so having all of my information in one place, but allows me to feel confident that I've got everything for work, life, school, kids, right. everything in one view. And that um that I've also put aside some time to actually get work done. So I block some time. <laughs> <that. And> <laughs> really some, fundamental, right? <laughs> some me time as well. Yeah. So yeah. I mean because yeah. you know um connecting with girlfriends is really important to me and and that is included in my me time. Yes. Absolutely. Well I have to say for the benefit of the, the world at large, you know, despite the, the busyness and intensity and fabulous rhythm of your life, you don't you never forget the birthdays, you never forget the little treats. You are incredible. Jackie, I could talk to you all day, but sadly, I know you have meetings to get to. I ask all my guests a couple of questions. So I would love your view and they're all different. But um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? I would be working full time, leading women's incubators and promoting and supporting women owned businesses. I found that I've run a number of incubators in the past. I'm currently a number, a member of a number of women's kind of networking and mentoring groups. So that includes women in tech, um, Networker and Dwen. And I have found them incredibly valuable in kind of the things that I learned from other women, but also the things that I'm able to share and support other women with. So I think that's really something that I'm passionate about and that's really important to me. So if I wasn't being all nerdy about social data, um, <laughs> a good part of my day, I'd, I'd be more focused on that. You know, maybe that's going to be the next uh, 10 years after you build the business further, who knows? And one last question from me. Um, I know you read prolifically, Give me a book that you've been reading recently that you enjoy that you want to share. Um, sure. Okay. Um, so one, I, I have a giant pile under my desk. Uh, <laughs> and, and it wasn't, I didn't collect the books just because you asked this question. Um, I happen to be generally surrounded by books and I have yeah, I know. lots of people following me around. Um, so actually this one is called Delete the Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. Um, so it's talking about you know, the, we are so present online and so much information, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is being um, kind of collected and shared out there. And I actually was interested in reading this because, you know, as a mom of three kids, I have put lots of images and things like that out there yeah. on my Facebook of the kids. And now that, that my eldest is 15, I mean, there have been a few times when that Facebook photo comes up that I thought right. was so cute and so hilarious when they were little and they find it embarrassing. So yeah. um, 
terrible, right? It's actually a really, really interesting read. And I would recommend that one. If oh, well, I'm definitely getting that one. It sounds fantastic. Jackie, thank you so, so much. It's wonderful to see you. You are just incredible. Thank you for taking the time today. And I look forward to catching up really soon. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. If you enjoyed it, I'd love you to review and subscribe to the podcast so we can share these amazing stories with others. I'd also love to connect with you, so feel free to contact me via Instagram DM at D Double Espresso. Until the next time, au revoir.